0: Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 12 through 20. The Apostle Paul continues to deliver his tough love message to the troubled church in ancient Corinth, where many of these brand new followers of Jesus have really gotten off the track, basically thinking that since Christ has forgiven all their sins, that means they can go out and do whatever they want, that they got a free pass to live the same way as before they gave their lives to Christ. Paul is confronting that misunderstanding of God's grace and gives them kind of a wake-up call on why they need to set higher standards and honor Christ in how they live. I'll be reading from the message paraphrase version of the New Testament, which puts the passage into more contemporary language. Let's hear God's word. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. You know the old saying, first you eat to live, and then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with illicit sex. Since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. God honored Jesus' body by raising it from the grave, and he'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. Until that time, remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity as Christ's body. You, shouldn't take, you wouldn't take Jesus' body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with our master, Jesus Christ, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love, for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. Amen. This is God's word to us. Here's something that's a little weird about me. I'm a fan of old-fashioned horror movies. Not today's slasher flicks with all the demonic gore and the high body counts. I can't really stomach that. But the classics, the old black and white movies with great actors like Lon Chaney as the Wolfman or Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Or my favorite, Boris Karloff in The Bride of Frankenstein. The Bride of Frankenstein is such a great story. Frankenstein, of course, as you know, is this monster put together through spare body parts. And then he's jolted to life by electricity in Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory. Frankie, I call him Frankie, he's kind of a sympathetic character. It's not his fault that he was put together with defective parts. In the movie, you kind of follow Frankie's struggle to to find his place in this confusing world. He's desperately trying to connect with people just on a human level, but he's different, you know, he's ugly, he's scary, he, he, he walks with a lurch, he speaks in simple uh, childlike grunts like, food, good, you know, plus he's got that spike sticking through his neck. Today you'd think he was just goth, right? I mean, no problem. But in the movie, people are afraid of him. The townspeople chase him away and try to kill him. Frankie just wants to connect, but he gets rejected over and over again. In The Bride of Frankenstein, he finds sanctuary in the hut of this old hermit. The hermit is blind, so he's not afraid of Frankie. He doesn't judge him by his looks, and he welcomes Frankie into his home. They sit by the fire, and Frankie is soothed by the hermit's violin music. They laugh, they drink wine, they, they puff on cigars. For the first time in his life, Frankie is happy. He even weeps because at last he's found a friend. But this idyllic moment is short-lived. The villagers come after him, they burn down the hut, and Frankie runs away. More rejection, more pain. Then the story shifts to Dr. Frankenstein, who is conducting a new experiment to create a mate for Frankenstein. Somebody exactly like him, also assembled from various body parts. Someone who will be his life partner, a companion, who is exactly what frankie is looking for someone who will understand him who will who won't be afraid of him it's his e-harmony perfect match someone to love and touch to be intimate with and who will love and touch him in return because that is the deepest cry of his monster heart to love and to be loved that's all he wants so Dr. Frankenstein and his assistants, they get the body assembled. There's thunderstorm raging over the castle. They hook up all the wires and the electricity. There's sparks flying everywhere. Dr. Frankenstein, you know, he turns up all the dials. Everything's ready, and Frankie's so excited, he's in the corner doing the monster mash, you know. The time has come. Massive lightning bolts shoot electricity through the inner body, and they, they tip her up on a table, unwrap the gauze, and she's alive, and she's beautiful. She's got that Jersey girl hairdo with the funky white stripe. And Frankie just can't believe it. She's everything he's ever dreamed of. A perfect mate. Made just for him. At long last, someone he can connect with and love. His heart is so full of anticipation. They help her to her feet. And in in the most dramatic moment of the film, they present her to Frankie. This is the moment he's been waiting for. He reaches out tenderly, timidly. He takes her hand, but as he touches her, she looks confused. As as Frankie comes closer, her face contorts in horror, and she she lets out this subhuman guttural scream as she pulls back, and Frankie's confused. Then he's crushed. He's just crushed, because this one who was supposed to be his perfect companion, who was supposed to fill the void in his heart, who was supposed to be his soulmate, rejects him, recoils at his touch, And so all the loneliness and pain just flood over him and Frankie goes crazy. Tears the place apart, kills her, kills himself as he destroys the lab. Well, what's the point of that movie? Why can't we connect with that story? Because relationships are key to life. The deepest desire of the human heart is to love and to be loved. Our deepest cry is to find intimacy and acceptance. That's how God created us. God created us for this kind of intimacy. And remember Adam and Eve. In Genesis two twenty three. when Eve is presented to Adam in the Garden of Edom, Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He experiences the deepest sense of connection and wholeness with Eve. And then in Genesis two twenty four, the next verse, this beautiful image of perfect love. This is why a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. One flesh, no shame. Not just that they weren't wearing any clothes, but their souls were naked before each other. They were completely vulnerable, completely exposed, and they were loved, and they were safe. A beautiful portrait of security and acceptance and oneness, the two become one flesh. This human intimacy is God's idea. He created it. It reflects his own loving nature. God created sexuality as a means of cementing this intimacy between two people. Sex is the most intimate way two people can come together. And God intended that sexual union to be the answer to our deepest needs. This is the Christian understanding of human sexuality. God's beautiful creation, a a physical connection of shame-free intimacy. The two become one. But sin enters in. We don't know how to love very well. In our search for this intimacy, we experience pain and rejection, confusion. It starts young. In our families, in middle school, when our sexual identity is forming, people experience rejection, confusion, experimentation, all trying to find a way to get this thing called intimacy to work. Through high school and college and adulthood, people are still searching for this intimacy that we know we need. And when it doesn't happen the way we want, when we buy into the world's definition of love and sex, we, we go a little crazy like Frankie. Because people get scared, become desperate for love or affection. Sin messes up the search for intimacy. There are so many false paths, phony shortcuts, and sad substitutes. People get drawn into sinful and destructive relationships. Sex becomes a substitute for intimacy. People do things that actually sabotage their ability ever to be intimate in the deepest way, end up pursuing a lifestyle that can actually prevent them from ever experiencing what they so desperately desire. And one of the great truths of Scripture is that the more God's way of true intimacy is lost or ignored, the more sex-obsessed a culture will be. And that brings us to ancient Corinth. Friends, they literally worshipped sex. The goddess Aphrodite was called the goddess of love, but she was really the goddess of impulse and lust. Her huge temple dominated the city of Corinth. Every night, a thousand prostitutes came out of Aphrodite's temple and went into the city to ply their trade. And that's just one of many temples in Corinth that did the exact same thing. Everything conceivable was available in Corinth, male and female, and anything in between. And it was all legal, was all considered normal. In Corinth, sex was their god. The ancient Greeks also had no sense of fidelity in marriage relationships. Marriage was not for love, but for, for, for providing a legal heir. The Greek philosopher Demosthenes expressed their attitude towards marriage when he wrote this, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. It was actually considered a mark of upper-class sophistication to have both male and female lovers. And the ultimate kind of love for the Greek philosophers, the poets, the cultural elites of their day was the love between two men. Plato's work called the Phaedrus was devoted to this theme of the superior nature of homoerotic love. So the idea that people in the New Testament times didn't know anything about long-term committed same-sex relationships, friends, that is completely false. Plato extolled those relationships. There is nothing new under the sun. And into this environment came the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel brought a new message of the importance of relationships, a new definition of love, a new understanding of sexual intimacy to this anything-goes approach to sexuality. The people who had experienced salvation in Christ were coming from this totally pagan, sex-obsessed culture. And so they were struggling to learn how to live this new way, struggling to live God's way of relationships and sex. And that's just like today, where people so desperately desire intimacy, but are pursuing all the sad substitutes. That's what Paul is talking about here. Everything is permissible. Everything's legal, he writes in verse 12. That was the common mantra heard around the Christians in Corinth. It's legal, so what's the problem? And Jesus has forgiven all our sins, so everything's permitted. They saw God's grace as a, as a get-out-of-jail-free card and went right on with their old ways. And Paul's response was, even if you think everything is permissible, not everything is going to be beneficial. He's not even trying to argue with them about what's morally right or wrong. He's just saying, the way you're living, it isn't smart. It's not helping you to become the person God wants you to be, if indeed that is what you want for your life. Because you'll pay a huge consequences for following your old lifestyle. God's way is always better, smarter. Our problems stem from the same root as the Corinthians. It's our sinful flesh nurtured by a sex-obsessed worldview all around us. It causes Christian believers to be more influenced by the pressures of our culture than by who we are in Christ. Unrestricted sex is touted as the shortcut cut to personal fulfillment and satisfaction. It saturates our advertisement, our entertainment. You cannot get away from it. We're inundated with these counterfeits and these cheap imitations of intimacy. And so then people abandon the search for the real thing. Men lose their way in life trying to validate their manhood. Women sacrifice their identity in Christ, seeking someone to love and to accept them. We've bought the lie that immediate sexual gratification ought to be the driving force in our lives, despite the consequences. And when that happens, it becomes a god. When sex becomes a god, there are consequences. Inevitably, you'll see a rise in promiscuity, prostitution, pornography. When sex becomes a god, inevitably, you'll see an increase in experimentation and a drift to the bazaar. When sex becomes a god, you'll also see an increase in abortion. Historians tell us that as many as one-third of the children in the ancient world were aborted. Their method of abortion was infanticide, either by drowning or by exposure. Just toss the newborn baby into a river like a bag of kittens. Or leave the newborn outdoors on the street or in the mountains to freeze to death or to be killed by animals. Did you know that Christians were the very first ones to pick up these abandoned children off the streets and care for them? No one cared for abandoned babies before Christ. Did you know that? Christians started the very first orphanages. And the second century, Christian Tertullian wrote that Christians, and I quote, sought out the tiny bodies of newborn babies from the refuse and dung heaps and raised them as their own, unquote. They did so because they believed every child was valuable to God. And we should remember that given our cultural acceptance of abortion as a form of birth control. When sex becomes a god, inevitably you'll see an increase in sexually transmitted disease. Near the temple of Aphrodite was the temple of Escapolis. I didn't say that right. He's their god of healing. People would go to his temple and they'd make clay representations of the diseased part of the body which they wanted that god to heal. Archaeologists have actually discovered a huge underground warehouse filled with thousands and thousands of clay representations of human sexual reproductive organs. During Paul's day, STDs had reached an epidemic level in Corinth. And even with all our scientific advances in the treatment of STDs, people still pay a high price for going against God's way. Even if it's legal, doesn't mean it's good. When sex becomes a God, we pay a high price in the guilt and the anxiety and the pain that sends people into emotional turmoil and to their therapists. A high cost in the welfare for children who don't have a pair of parents to watch over them as too many men abandon their responsibilities to parent the children that they father. And many women continue to have relationships and bear more children with these irresponsible men. A high cost in the divorce rate as families break apart. And in sexual abuse, sexual harassment, clearly the misuse of sexuality it dominates our society and yet sexuality is God's idea and therefore it is good but like everything else that God makes when people get their hands on it and redefine it according to their own agenda it becomes destructive Paul is simply saying that when you develop a lifestyle of sexual immorality it is unlike any other sin in its destructive nature because it uniquely combines the physical and the spiritual. Scripture teaches that when people engage in physical intimacy, that engagement produces a new thing. The two become one. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the dominant view of Scripture. Jesus endorses this as his view of sexuality in Matthew 19.5. He quotes this Genesis passage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In God's view, sexual intimacy is designed for bonding, cementing two people together. It's it's like taking uh, sodium and chloride molecules and mixing them together. You get something brand new, salt. Or mixing two parts hydrogen with one part oxygen, you get water. When two people come together physically, you wind up with something brand new. And this is so important to Jesus because there is no other area of life other than your relationship with Christ himself where this kind of intimacy can happen. Now, if you decide you don't want this new thing that you've created, if it's just a momentary passion or a fling, just kind of recreational sex, then you pull away. And in the pulling away, you tear off a part of yourself. A piece of your soul gets left behind. Obviously, the more times people engage in this kind of process, the more that person's soul gets shredded and left behind and the greater damage to their ability to actually form intimate relationships. The more partners a person has, the more difficulty that person is going to have in actually bonding with a spouse. I see this in marriage counseling a lot. When they finally want to create that bond of intimacy, they can't do it. They are not able to do it, and then they can't figure out why. It's it's like there's just a piece missing. They can't attach when they finally want to. And so even in their marriage, they feel detached and and very dissatisfied. Sexual intimacy is designed by God for bonding. It's kind of like getting chewing gum stuck in your hair. You know, the chewing gum gets so enmeshed you have to tear out some hair with it or get scissors to cut it out. And so it is when two people come together, when they tear that relationship apart, they tear themselves. The more that happens, the only way to handle it is to become numb to those feelings, to detach sexuality from intimacy, which is the attitude promoted in our day. And that is so destructive to the human soul. It's why alcohol and drugs play such a big part in sexual experimentation and immoral behavior. I was drunk, you know, I was high, as though that's an acceptable excuse. People use alcohol and drugs to suppress, suppress their conscience, to lower their inhibitions, to, to numb themselves. Otherwise, they'd realize this way of life, it just isn't very smart. The intimacy we're looking for really can only be found, uh, can't be found in some perfect person, that goddess or that prince charming. They're not out there. True, the true intimacy we're looking for has to be found first in our union with Christ. That's where it starts. Paul tells us his spirit indwells those who believe in Jesus. Your body is the spirit's temple. We belong to him and he belongs to us. Intimacy, this relationship with Christ, is the starting point for all other healthy relationships. And next week in chapter 7, it continues the theme, and it looks at the, the positive side of singleness, why God so highly values single people, and also marriage in a confused culture. I hope you'll be here for that. But the main point Paul is making today is that you belong to God, and that includes your body. So what you do physically with your body matters to God. He wants to uplift your value, wants you to see how precious you are to him and how he can be the one who helps you fulfill your deepest needs for love and companionship. God owns you, body and soul, and he has your best interests at heart. Can you trust him with that? He's more than just your wingman. In love, he owns you, body and soul. And guess what? If you've damaged your soul through the sad substitutes of our world, You can turn your life around with Christ's help. We we repent and we reclaim the purity of Christ in your life. You can find forgiveness and strength and wholeness wherever you are or wherever you've been. For all of us, determine that from this point on, you're going to live as a faithful follower of Christ, united to him. If you're single, that you'll live in purity as a commitment perhaps to a future mate or just simply to Christ himself. Or in marriage as a faithful one woman or one man person so that he, 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 the, the stains of any previous failures can be overcome by your renewed commitment to marriage. For some of you, this might be a life-dominating problem and you need professional help. We have a great network of Christian therapists in our area. Uh, so that help is available. We'd, we'd love to help you make that step if you're willing to take that step. But remember most of all, your relationships our key to life. God's way isn't just right, it's smart. And may God's grace enable us all to find and live in his victory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is such a critical message for us as Christians living in an ungodly culture. Lord, we've got to take our cues and our beliefs from you and your word and not from the pressures that we hear in the culture around us, Lord. Help us, if we really want to know Jesus, to follow what you've told us to follow and to do and be the people that you've told us to be. Thank you that your spirit actually lives within us to give us the strength to do that. We can't do it on our own. Our compulsions and our, our, our desires are, are much greater than we can handle on our own, Lord. But by your spirit, we know there's power for forgiveness in new life. And we thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.